This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. We're back from our very short summer vacation, and this time around, we're going to take a bit of a point of reflection back at some of the big stories from this past summer in media, some of which we've talked about before, some of which we haven't, but we wanted to look back and, and see what lessons we could learn from this summer's big stories in media. So one of the industries that we always talk about the summer is summer box office. Alex, what was the summer box office story this year? Well, there were a few, and on our rundown, I wrote sequels, Sad Emoticon, because with a few exceptions, a lot of this summer's sequels just didn't meet box office expectations. You follow this industry a lot closer than I do, and I have to say, I don't feel like there was any story that, that was a big story about the summer film cycle. There might, there were a few. One of the biggest ones, which it, I, it's a shame that I have to kind of report this as it is, but Ghostbusters did not make nearly as much money as both Sony and the film industry were expecting when they put together the cast and crew they did with the $144 million budget they gave it. Right, and there's been a lot of controversy and discussion of the film because of the switch in casting it with all women, and much negative press on the subject, much positive press about the nature of the movie. I think also there was a temptation to take this as some sort of test of this concept. Um, but do you think that's even a, a fair way to go? It, it, it's hard because I, I hate to say it as like a test of what a big-budget female-led movie can be. Well, in many ways, it comes back to the dilemma that we see happening with sequels again and again, right? Is a sequel a measure of, is a successful sequel, does it succeed because it's a sequel, or does it succeed because it was a good execution of the intellectual property? And this summer, you saw a lot of movies that succeeded because they were good executions rather than the same thing done before, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. That was fairly similar to the first one. That didn't do well. But something like Finding Dory or Captain America Civil War were kind of reinventions of the, the wheel in a way. Dory put the focus on a different character and tackled different issues from the first movie. Captain America Civil War put a different spin on the Marvel storytelling and put in some really, well, I, I call them interesting twists you know, as, a, as a critic, but they put kind of some interesting spins on the Marvel formula. And both of those, those were the top two films of the summer. They made a lot of money. So what do you think, if you had to boil it down to one story, what was the story of the summer for theatrical box office? Unoriginal sequels failed. Or failed is a strong word, but did not meet expectations. They did not reach the heights that they were expected to. With a few exceptions, but it's the idea that you need to have something inventive to draw people in. And I would say that's the biggest lesson from this summer and the biggest lesson from this summer's box office. So we turn to fall now in the beginning of awards season, more or less. And so do we see strategies other than sequels emerging for the coming months? We're going to see, well, we see a lot of Oscar bait around this time of year. And so we're going to see a lot of movies from the independent studios get wider releases. Um, The highly controversial The Birth of a Nation, one of the highest, most anticipated films, La La Land, uh, which just debuted in Venice and Telluride to uproarious reviews. And I can say my excitement is very much peaked. This is very much my kind of movie. But we're also going to still see some sequels and spinoffs. Like, one of the biggest releases of the fall is going to be Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. 
the Her uh, offshoot of the Harry Potter series, written by J.K. Rowling, directed by David Yates, who directed the last half of the Harry Potter series. I mean, the film industry never, never completely reinvents itself, but fall does bring different kinds of movies in wide release from summer. Well, we'll have to look back on how fall turns out by December and, and see what the story is at that point. Absolutely. So we're, now we're going to move into TV to talk about a few of the stories that are happening there. And the biggest TV story of the summer is the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, I think partly it feels that way because they just closed a few weeks ago. But even trying to remember back as far as June, I really don't think there was much going on. Or there were no big television stories that I can think of uh, prior to the Olympics. Yeah, a lot of them focused around the election and sure. other things that are happening. But the Olympics, in terms of a TV perspective, the reason why it was such a big story was the ratings were down. They were, and certainly, well, the ratings were down and the coverage couldn't be avoided because the Olympics, as they do, take up solid weeks of programming. Not only were they on NBC's broadcast network, but on several of the cable channels. And online, everything was online. Tons of online, right. Yeah. So I think a lot of people probably watched some Olympic coverage. They you know, were familiar with what some of the narratives were. I think there's been a lot of speculation on how do we explain this. You know, it wasn't the case where the games were in a time zone that was far off. No, US Rio was one hour ahead of us. Right, so we can't blame time delays, which is usually, I think, where the attention goes. You know, some noted that maybe the narratives around the games this time just weren't as strong. Uh, I saw an, a very, I thought, astute analysis in Variety noting the way in which the Olympics showcases events that do happen more than every four years. And so the fact that NBC's coverage, or really any big coverage, of a lot of these sporting events is, is so limited um, that it makes it difficult to garner a lot of attention and excitement about this one event that happens every four years. And so the one of the most interesting solutions that I saw posed for the decline in ratings was the need to pay more attention to these sports year in and year out so as they go through their So have bigger coverage for, say, the gymnastics and swimming world championships instead of just having their big event be the Olympics? Right, and I thought that was an interesting idea because in many cases, NBC, or for the most part, I think it is NBC, does cover those, but they're often, you know, sort of... They're thrown on Saturday nights in random parts of the year. Or they're... even in the middle of the afternoon on Saturday. And so that it was interesting, I thought, as a way to drive excitement and attention to the Olympics, paying more attention to these sports year-round during the non-Olympic years. Uh, but it's still, you know, I, I don't know that there is a better solution, because I think what NBC is now dealing with is a difficulty constructing an audience. And it doesn't seem to be a problem with sports, and we haven't seen, I haven't seen the ratings from this return to football season. So, but... Sunday Night Football, both on its Thursday night debut and its first football game, were down okay. by 10 to 15%, but the Fox late afternoon game was up year to year, and I think some of that has to do with the matchups, like last year's big Sunday night opener was Giants-Cowboys. And that was the big Fox afternoon matchup this year, and it was a very close game. So, And actually, Giants-Cowboys was on par in late afternoon to primetime. It was actually a little bit up hmm. when it aired in the late afternoon. So it, it's hard to kind of right. find a correlation. Well, there. and it's we're only one, one week into the season. So I think the issue that networks and, and really anyone else in the content business is just going to continue to struggle with more and more is the limits of attention. And as viewers perhaps become less invested in seeing 
every minute of a sporting event when they can easily follow the highlights on their phone or in some other way, that that, that might be a long, the start of a long-term downward trend. And I think with the Olympics, even, when you're talking about coverage that's tape delayed, the gymnastic events, for example, were tape delayed to primetime when you could watch them in the in full in the late afternoon and you would you could know all the results before they would air at midnight yeah. in your time zone. Yeah, and I think it's hard to speak to every event in the same way. You know, some of the swimming and the track races, you know, that can be over in a matter of seconds. And, and to some degree, it is just knowing what the outcome is. Whereas I think there is quite a bit of inherent entertainment in watching a gymnastics performance, even if you know what the outcome is already. So I think these are all big challenges. And this is certainly going to be top of mind for NBC going forward, given the long-term contracts that they have and the uh, they have the olympics through 2030 or something like that it, it's an obscenely long contract with yeah. a lot of money at stake but i don't think the olympics are over i think oh no there's <laughs> there's no way that this is like the downfall of the olympics so the other aspect of television that got a lot of coverage this summer was that there was a lot of streaming news that we covered pretty extensively in the last podcast if you want to go back and listen we won't rehash but I think the lesson there is that we are at the start of this new disruption of a new form of distribution. And, and even though it feels like we've been in the TV.com era for some time, uh, this is still the beginning. A lot of new competitors will come to market, and I'm afraid that just as many will find themselves out uh, within a year or two or five. But clearly a lot of attention being paid to the launch of new streaming services. Absolutely. We're at the beginning. Everybody's trying to figure out what this new space is. And in a lot of industries, it's the same thing. Everybody's trying to figure out how to best utilize this new internet space and how to find the viewers who are maybe moving away from watching TV live and maybe moving toward those streaming sites, how to find them, how to get them to subscribe. And one of the big things about these streaming sites is we don't know what a hit is. Right. Like, we don't know what a, a hit is on Netflix, and there have been some sites that have put out ratings, but how accurate are they? Right, and so in, to that point, I think I saw so the story on Netflix this, this summer has been Stranger Things, which yes. I haven't gotten to yet, but hope to soon. It's quite good. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> well, that seems to be what everyone is saying, mm -hmm. um, and the numbers on that, they did release, and I think I want to say... It was 13 million. Right, which, which to me, actually, that... That does kind of sound what I would categorize as a hit. Oh, absolutely. It's apparently their third highest rated show behind Making a Murderer and the new season of Orange is the New Black. That show's been out less than 60 days, and to have gathered that many viewers, I think, I mean, of course, the economic model works differently. It's not necessarily about who watches uh, any one particular property. Or but... at what particular time, just that they're watching. <laughs> Maybe we don't know what a Netflix hit is, or we don't know the metrics to measure it, but by a couple of them at least, it looks like Netflix had a hit this summer in the form of Stranger Things. So now we're going to move on to journalism, an industry that we haven't talked about since our big journalism episode several weeks ago. Right. Um, and I think the story here is, is the continued story of, is Trump good for ratings, or how good for ratings is Trump as this endless election cycle continues to just drone on and on. <laughs> and there is evidence that Trump is in fact good for ratings. I mean, the Republican primary debates were up substantially from where they were four years ago at that point in the election cycle. Everyone will be interested to know whether or not the debates continue to be high as we move into the final debates between Clinton and Trump uh, in the fall. 
the conventions, that would have been a summer news story. Yeah, and I want to say the Republicans were slightly down, but the Democrats were slightly up, but it's a hard comparison because the Democrats had a three-day convention in 2012 because they were reappointing Obama as their nominee instead of, say, Clinton. But certainly not the scale of the hype or the attention that political coverage was receiving during the primary cycle and those primary debates where those debate viewing totals were just uh, unprecedented. Yeah, we've never seen anything like it. Four years ago, the debate totals were in the 50 to 60 million range for, and the vice president debate was a little bit below that. And I wonder where we're going to see those numbers. Check back on that one come December. The other big journalism story for the summer has been the departure of Roger Ailes and what that might mean for the future of Fox News. Yeah, Ailes was ousted after a culture of sexual harassment was uncovered at Fox News, um, by, especially by ga- journalist Gabriel Sherman. And it seems that Fox News is going to undergo a transition of some sort. It's unknown whether how big a transition it's going to be, and I doubt it's going to lose the conservative voice that it is so carefully cultivated over the past decade and a half. Right. And I think it, there's no doubt that there will be sort of a change in, in the in the network. And it's it's one that we're paying a lot of attention to, given, of course, the, the election cycle. But I think it's good to remember that actually not that many people watch the cable news channels relative to what many, many believe. So although Fox is still the highest rated of those cable news channels, although their viewership is notoriously old, I once had a person um, at Fox News tell me that their viewership is essentially dying off. Well, no, that's not good for the future of the business, but uh, we will see what form Fox News continues to take in the future. And again, I think, you know, given some of the other conversation we're having about TV and the transition to streaming, I think it remains interesting that we don't see a lot of news about uh, video news moving off of the cable platform, or we continue to focus on we see a lot of digital cable s- channels. We see a lot of digital sites producing videos, like BuzzFeed and Vox and other sites like that are very big video producers, but cable news, you see them post like their Twitter, but they're not certainly the ones I'm seeing shared. Of course, this is totally biased to my <laughs> own Facebook feed here, sure. but those aren't the ones that are going to be shared into, you know, somebody sharing them into the feed. Content isn't being created necessarily originally for anything outside of that cable feed. Right. So we, I would expect to see further change there. Now we're going to talk about advertising. And a story that's been getting increased scrutiny this summer was the use of online influencers. And so let's talk about what we're talking about there, Alex, first. So who are the influencers and why are we talking about them in relation to advertising? So these are celebrities who are taking ad money to promote products on their channel. So these are YouTube stars who have millions and millions of viewers who take money from a product and then talk about that product in their videos or stars who have very high Instagram followings, models who have very high Instagram followings, they will take money from a product and they will, you know, pose with that product and post a picture on Instagram with it. And so in many ways, this is a story about the changing nature of media, because certainly we've had celebrity endorsements as long as we've had celebrities. However, broadcast media and, and other forms of media have had rules related to disclosure and the need for you know, when it's a paid promotion to be acknowledged and and part of the messaging. Whereas it's been less clear whether that's required. It's not always stated online. And in in Instagram feeds, it's not always stated that this is an ad that's being posted. 
the FCC does not oversee Instagram, to my knowledge, and uh, the Federal Trade Commission is the one that tends to oversee any kind of commercial messaging. And I, I imagine, you know, to, to some people, they notice that somebody is telling them about a product, and I think some parts of the audience would assume, well, of course, that's obviously some sort of paid mention, but I think there is increasingly a recognition that that's not everyone's expectation, and a concern and the need for to make those kind of promotional situations clear because they are becoming such a central part of this new economy of the the Facebook and a lot of the Facebook. The Facebook. The Facebook. Wow. No. I, let me back up. But from, from YouTube and the way in which that particular video business works, which just to be clear is very different from Netflix business or the long form professionally produced content business. And that's definitely a story we're going to be keeping our eye on going throughout this year and next and as, quite frankly, as digital platforms just continue to grow. And experiment with different business models because that's really what this, well, a different yet the same business model. Another industry that we've talked about uh, had some news over the summer. That is the theater industry. Alex, I know you watch Hamilton closely. Uh, can you tell us what happened there this summer? So there were two big, st- well, I guess three big stories that came from Hamilton this summer. One was that I saw it, and I still can't stop bragging about that because I waited for it forever to be in the room where it happens. But two other big stories were the Tonys. It won 11 Tony Awards. It fell one short of setting the record. Last we talked about it was before the mm-hmm. Tonys. But it fell one short of setting the record, and it won all but two of the awards that it was eligible for. It lost to David Rockwell's set design for She Loved Me, and Cynthia Arrivno beat out Philippia Sue for lead actress in a musical. But it won a lot of Tonys, and that's that's a big thing in the theater. The Tony Award for Best Musical is the most important award at the Tonys, and Hamilton took that. Not that it needed the help. No, no. So do you see that being any kind of particular lesson going forward? The Tonys always tend to award, like, out of all the award ceremonies, they're the ones who always tend to lean towards the best. Campaigns aren't necessarily a huge part of Mm -hmm. the process, like for the Oscars or the Emmys. And I think the, the lesson is just be original. You know, be, take that risk. You know, the Tonys have rewarded once in past years, Kinky Boots, Fun Home, so that over some more mainstream elements like Kinky Boots beat Matilda and Fun Home beat An American in Paris, which are kind of more mainstream, bigger box office musicals. So I, I would just say the lesson is for theater producers, don't be afraid of bringing that show on. It might colossally fail, and a bunch of shows do colossally fail. But if you, if you crack that Tony, you're, you're going to make money. I think one of the the most interesting aspects of that award uh, from our earlier conversation is that you're only eligible in your first year. Yes. And I I wonder, as we begin to approach the Emmys, how television awards might be different if they at least had two different categories. They had returning. returning. um, Because it it, it does seem, at least from a nomination level, that there there seemed to be very little new blood uh, going on in terms of Emmy nomination. This year there was some. We had the Americans breakthrough. We had Mr. Not Robot a new show, but uh, new in nominations, yes. Yeah. Um, and another big story coming out of Hamilton is the original cast departed. Right. A lot of the original cast has left the show now by this point, which is very commonplace in theater, but it got big news because Hamilton has kind of broken out of this. So to see, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Leslie Odom Jr., Philippia Sue, Renee Elise Goldsberry leave the show... 
Yeah, I think it took a lot of people by surprise, and they also didn't give a lot of lead time to the announcement, but I think the big lesson here is with Hamilton, it doesn't matter who's in it. The show is the star. The show is what will bring people in, and I think that's exemplified by what's happened in Chicago. Hamilton's coming to Chicago in a few weeks, and the day tickets went on sale, they sold out. You know, without any cast announcements. And actually, I happened to the guy who I happened to see as Alexander Hamilton is the guy who's going to be playing him in Chicago. And he was fantastic. So they're going to have no shortage of people to come in and replace the stars who created the roles in Wontonius for them. And so there's even yet another theater story that we have been watching over the course of the summer. Alex, tell me about The Cursed Child. So Harry Potter and The Cursed Child opened at the Palace Theater in London on July 31st. And the phrasing I've heard for it is it's the Hamilton of the UK. Okay. It's been sold out since the beginning of its run. You know, the tickets for the initial batch of tickets went on sale this past October. They sold out on the day. And for the uninitiated, The Cursed Child is part of what intellectual property? Oh, Harry Potter and The Cursed Child. And they had a recent on-sale period where they sold 250,000 tickets in one day. Wow. About as fast as they possibly could go. So what's the lesson here? Known properties can do well and franchises can reach across media. Oh, so is this, is Cursed Child, is is it just the Harry Potter world or is Rowling connected as author? It is, J.K. Rowling was, did not directly write the script, but she was in the room as it was being written. She was heavily collaborating with Jack Thorne, the playwright, and John Tiffany, the director in the writing of it. So she was, this is J.K. Rowling's story. She th- she just said that she didn't write the play itself because she doesn't know as much about stage. All right, so will we be seeing Cursed Child across the, the pond anytime? Yes, I, I would say it's a certainty that Harry Potter and the Cursed Child will come to America. Personally, I have it pegged in 2018. I think they're going to take about another year or so to let it continue building buzz in the UK, and they'll announce a transfer for the spring of 2018. Now, this one caught my attention largely uh, in the bookshop window, and you know that it's already, the book copy has sold two million copies already. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. I see the play in December, so I am holding back on, you know, learning about the show. But yeah, it huge book sales, you know. Booksellers were saying it's the biggest pre-ordered book since Harry Potter and the <laughs> Deathly Hallows in 2007. So, for those keeping track of the life or death of sequels and franchises and intellectual property at home. We've got a mixed bag of a story over the summer, I guess. We do. So let's go into music, another industry that we haven't talked about for several episodes now. What were the big stories from this summer? You know, maybe I wasn't paying attention to the right places, but I didn't seem to see a whole lot of music news this summer. And certainly part of that was the story about Adele's album coming out at the end of last year was just... The numbers there were so extraordinary that it's unsurprising that no stories come close. Here toward the end of summer, the Frank Ocean album has been getting a lot of attention for, um, again, sort of this unusual release strategy in in a way following uh, what Beyonce had done with Lemonade and having this whole visual... Yeah, he had a visual visual album album. that, and the weird part about that was it filled his commitment to Universal, so then when he released Blonde, his actual album, he released that independently. Right, so there's certainly much more of a story there, Um, although I haven't particularly heard that the sales have been 
uncommonly high, but it did have, again, it was playing in this new strategies, new distribution mechanisms. It, what, it was an Apple Music exclusive right. on its initial it offset. Trying to get to the word exclusive there. Thank you for getting me there. The strategy of exclusives for certain streaming services continues to be used, and it certainly makes great sense given where we are in the competitive life of these different streaming services. Uh, just It's new- one thing they can use to put themselves on top. Right, and news out today that both Amazon and Pandora are expected to be launching new services in the next few weeks. Uh, you know, it's really difficult for these services to differentiate themselves in any way other than their price point and what their catalog includes. And so exclusivity seems to be really important. And I think, though, the bigger story is that sort of having more streaming services right now I don't think is going to make any of them any more solvent. Um, It's clearly a case where there's a battle for one service to emerge as, as particularly strong. But even once that happens, I think the music industry continues to be very concerned that the streaming services are not paying content prices that are significant enough to replace the revenue that is being lost because people just aren't buying content anymore. And for some of them, like Apple could afford it, but someone like Spotify, they're still losing money despite trying to cut down their commitment to the music labels. But it's a weird dichotomy of can the streaming services actually pay more than they are and remain solvent? Right. Do we need a even greater change in things for the streaming model to work out? Again, we have, and we're going to jump now to talking about some things going on at Google, Facebook, and Twitter. And I, I think the connection there is we have these companies that are not invested in content creation, some of which, like Facebook and Twitter, um, and, and to a large extent Google, although it's difficult to place search, making so much money based on distribution and not taking that huge cost of content creation. I think the big question for the recording industry is whether content creation alone can continue to stand as its own business. I mean, certainly in the music space, you know, these distributors aren't being all that profitable on their own either. But but they're also not necessarily creating their own content. They're trying to cultivate others. Although Apple Music is now going to break into some of its own content creation. They just bought Carpool Karaoke, and there's been rumors that they're developing a scripted drama. So, so we will see. All right, so Alex, tell me more about Facebook TV. So we don't know a huge amount about it right now, but the article I was reading when it was announced... I think this was a few days before we're recording now, is it's going to be a competitor to YouTube. So the idea is that you'll be able to upload your own videos and then share them and embed them and everything like that. So we don't know the lesson from that, but what do you think, what should we be watching? I would watch for who's posting what when. So I would watch to say if someone like The Tonight Show starts posting videos on Facebook TV or other late night shows and, you know, other content creators like maybe if big YouTube stars also start uploading to Facebook. And so the question is, to some degree, whether Facebook offers better terms than YouTube in Mm -hmm. terms of ad share, although would there be any ad? That is, that I don't know. That I can't speak to. So that, I think that, I think you're right on in terms of whether this starts to challenge YouTube's function as sort of that site for viral videos and the way in which they're able to then 
push commercial messages as part of that you go there as opposed to having it fed to you, which is more of what's happening in the Facebook feed. So definitely something we'll have to keep watching as well. So now we're going to move into more Facebook stories. And one of the big stories from the summer was Facebook changing its algorithm so that new stories fall below personal posts in social media feeds. Yes, and I feel like this kind of came on the heels. Was it just this summer uh, that sort of the revelation that perhaps the algorithm wasn't as scientific as everyone thought? Well, that was the Facebook trends. Right, okay. That was the Facebook trends which were curated versus algorithmic, and people got mad that they were the curators were biased, and then as soon as they switched to an algorithm, a fake story popped up. You know, yeah, like, so, as it's trending about Megyn Kelly. So maybe the, the takeaway in this realm is that to some degree, as a culture, maybe we became a little more sophisticated and critical when it comes to our social media, recognizing that we needed to ask more questions about what goes into an algorithm and how do our feeds come to us, just like we perhaps became a little more critical of the nature of the business model behind some of the messaging we were seeing from YouTube stars and the like. And um, the last big social media story we're going to talk about, and the last big story of the summer we're going to talk about, is Instagram stories, which popped up a couple weeks ago. And the parallel I would draw is they're basically Snapchat stories on Instagram. So, Amanda, does that make sense? <laughs> I'm just nodding. But I think, as, as, as we were discussing earlier, it, the more things change, the more they stay the same, the more we see the same strategies of cannibalizing what others do and, and seeing how it works. And so I think as much as we may begin to feel as though we've been in this social media era for some time now, uh, we're still in, in the early days, and, and lots of entities are still just trying to figure it out. Yeah, like Instagram is trying to figure out where it can compete with Snapchat and where, say, Snapchat has dominance over it. And that's really what it's trying to do, is trying to figure out how what it can do to kind of get more users, daily active users, to Instagram. Right, and, and so, and certainly daily active users are one thing, but also then figuring out how those active users can and can't be monetized. Yes. Uh, would be the one we're most focused on. Well, we've reached that part of our podcast where we're closing things out and reflecting back on what we're watching. Alex, what are you watching? I am starting to catch up on You're the Worst, the FXX comedy. I'm about halfway through the second season now, and it's excellent. It's sharp, it's funny, and it's not afraid to be dramatic. Season two, one of the best aspects of it is the arc in which Aya Cash's character deals with clinical depression. And that's just, it's remarkable watching it. And it's a show that I would never have expected. You know, it, there was a lot of buzz around it, but when it first premiered, I wouldn't have expected it to become what it was. It's really evolved into something special. What about you, Amanda? What are you watching? Well, I've been catching up on the most recent season of Shameless. And it was one of those that I knew was out there waiting for me. And after casting about for a few weeks and, and not really finding any television that kind of filled my soul. It's been nice to go back to some some characters who, you know, I feel like I've been hanging out with for a while, <laughs> I, I care about in some way. And so um, it's, it's not a show that gets talked about a lot, but it's been, I've enjoyed going back and, and, and really do enjoy the show. I haven't seen that one yet, but I'll, I, it's on my list to catch up at I some know, point. I know, it's so hard at this point. All right. 
So that's it for this look back at the summer for Media Business Matters. If you want to find more episodes of Media Business Matters, including some of our deeper dives into stories we talked about today, you can go to amandalots.com or search in your podcast app for Media Business Matters. You can follow us on Twitter. Amanda, where can they find you on Twitter? Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And if you have questions for our listener mailbag, you can write us at drtvlots at gmail.com. Yeah, we look forward to revisiting the mailbag shortly, so we would love to get your questions. And you can find me on Twitter at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all for listening. And for Amanda Lots, I'm Alex Intner. We'll be back soon.